Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. The latest inflation data and what they mean for pensions, savings and mortgage rates. Is the long arm of the taxman reaching too far? And why the latest pension freedoms aren't quite the revolution they might seem? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of the FT's economics editor, Chris Giles. Hello. And two special studio guests, Alan Hyam of Fidelity Personal Investing. Hello. And Tina Riches of Smith & Williamson. Hello. This week saw the release of the latest UK inflation data. Now, normally we don't spend much time discussing economic indicators on The Money Show, but this month's reading was notable for two reasons. One is that it forms the basis for the increases in a whole host of state benefits in April. And the other is that it came in significantly lower than many economists expected. There are two main measures of inflation in the UK. The Retail Prices Index is calculated in a different way and includes some items that the Consumer Prices Index does not, notably the costs of home ownership, such as mortgage interest payments, buildings insurance and council tax. The Consumer Prices Index, which only started in the 1990s and which is more comparable with international measures of price growth, is the one used for the indexation of benefits. And it's also the one that is targeted by the Bank of England when setting interest rates. CPI inflation for September came in at 1.2%, some way below the 1.5% recorded in August, and well shy of the Bank of England's target of 2%. Good news, you might think, at a time when wage growth remains stubbornly weak and there is so much talk of squeezed middles and a cost-of-living crisis. Well, maybe, and maybe not. Here to explain what it all means is Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor. Chris, welcome to The Money Show. First of all, why is inflation suddenly so subdued? It doesn't seem that long ago that we were fretting about it being above target and prices going up too quickly. Well, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Inflation now at 1.2% in September is well down on the time we last thought it was at really rather bad high levels in 2011, over 5%. Uh, and also when it was above 2% not that long ago. Why has it come down? Two reasons, I think. One is declining commodity prices uh, across the world. Oil prices we know are falling, and this is going to continue to probably pull it even lower than its current figure in the months ahead. And secondly, the strength of sterling over the past year. You might have read this week that sterling's been falling on the international 
money markets, but for the past year it's been rising quite sharply. That makes imports cheaper. We import a lot in this country, and that's brought prices down, some people say, by one percentage point. So if you added it all together, inflation underlying in UK inflation is actually quite close to the 2%, but sterling's rise has brought it down to one2 Now, as I mentioned, the rate uh, in September is used as the yardstick for benefit increases next April. But recently we've been hearing about benefit freezes. So what will happen to benefits next year? It really depends who you are. Now, when we say the September rate uh, is used for benefit rises, I think we should probably put it in the past tense. It, It was used for benefit rises, but it hasn't been for some time. Back in the 2012 budget, the Chancellor announced that from 2014 onwards, so this year, most benefits would rise by 1%, but not inflation. So they went up this year by 1% and will do so again next year. So actually, it really is very close to the 1.2 we've got. So had he announced that or had he not announced that the 2015-16 rates in April next year would have been uh, 1.2 and now are going to be 1. For pensioners, of course, a different rule applies for pensioners, uh, for the main basic state pension, and there the triple lock applies where it's the highest of CPI inflation, 1.2, average earnings even lower, 0.9%, or 2.5%. So pensioners will get 2.5% in April. So actually, these inflation figures used to matter in September hugely for what people got in benefits, but no longer do. Perhaps one person who is watching very closely will be Mark Carney and the other members of the MPC. Now, in recent months, we've seen uh, a couple of members of the Monetary Policy Committee vote in favour of uh, interest rate rises. There's been lots and lots of speculation about when the first rise will come. Does this data push that rise further back into the future now? Well, if you're the people who are betting in the money markets on it, it does. In fact, it's been pushed really a long way forward in a few months. In June, people thought the first interest rate rise was going to be this year, November or December. And now they're talking, the in markets are suggesting it'll be somewhere sort of September, October next year. So it's been pushed almost a year forward. I don't think that's realistic. In some ways, people were expecting too much of a rate rise very early this year and are now probably expecting it too late next year. I think the first quarter or second quarter of next year is still probably, we don't know yet, but probably the most likely time. And I don't think these inflation figures are going to have a huge effect on the way the Bank of England thinks about it. They will certainly bring down the forecast for inflation in the near term, but what the Bank of England really cares about is the medium term, and because we're seeing extremely strong labour market, extremely strong growth still, we haven't seen a slowdown as much as the Bank of England expects in the economy, there's very little reason for them to say, actually the medium term outlook for inflation is much weaker than it was, and therefore we can be much more loose on monetary policy than we otherwise had been. But the important thing to stress is that the Bank of England is saying very loudly and very clearly that if and when interest rates go up, they're not going to go up fast. And the words they use is limited and gradual, and they keep saying that. So while we will probably get some interest rate rises next year, we're not going to get very many. Thanks very much. That was Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor. Still to come on the show, treat your pension like a bank account, says the Treasury, but your provider may not agree. First, though, let's look at tax avoidance. 
Every time cash-strapped politicians need to raise a few quid, they'll trot out that easy line about the richest paying their fair share and taking a hard line against those who try to avoid doing so. And of course, we Brits love to see the mighty fall, so we devour front-page splashes about celebrities caught in dodgy film schemes or other convoluted avoidance structures. The reality, though, is more nuanced. The UK's tax code is fabulously complicated, and governments over the years have created many loopholes and exemptions that the wealthy, quite often legitimately, seek to exploit. Cracking down on these is electorally popular. Tax avoiders don't have many friends in the court of public opinion. But there are growing concerns that the powers the Treasury is granting to HM Revenue and Customs are way out of proportion to any crimes that might be committed, and that those powers are increasingly being exercised without due process. And while it may sometimes sound like all these things only relate to footballers and rich non-doms, there is a danger that relatively normal people with fairly uncomplicated tax affairs could find themselves on the receiving end of a very aggressive tax investigation. So, where does the fine line between pursuit of evaders and the persecution of honest mistakes lie? Here to discuss is Tina Riches, National Tax Partner at Smith & Williamson. Tina, welcome to the show. First of all, can you outline for me the main powers that HMRC has been granted that it did not have, say, uh, two or three years ago? I think if we can go back a step, there was a huge review of HMRC powers right across the board over a period of about six years. And those powers have basically only just completely come into force. So some of the powers that came into force are ones as a result of that review, which was reasonably balanced and came out with a good balance of powers between HMRC and the taxpayer. Before all of those have come into force, and and they cover things like um, penalties and powers for HMRC to carry out inspections so they can do their job, HMRC have been given additional powers to almost bypass some of those balanced powers that they have been given. One is, uh, you mentioned tax avoidance, one is around investments or schemes which HMRC think are tax avoidance, so they may not even have got to a tribunal yet. And they've been given the power to issue notices to taxpayers to actually pay the tax up front before the case goes to a tribunal. This has caused quite a lot of consternation because there's no formal appeal process against that. So HMRC can just take um, some sort of investment into, for example, film schemes, deem it effectively to be avoidance, and then issue these notices for people to pay. So these are the so-called accelerated payment notices. That's right, yes, accelerated payment notices or partner payment notices. And these have just started coming out over the last month. Investments that have been issued on so far, um, taxpayers are now in the position where they need to decide whether to agree to settle with HMRC, an amount which HMRC has picked, or whether to pay the full tax amount up front, neither of which is particularly palatable, especially when the tribunal hasn't even considered the merits of the case. So that has put a huge amount of power into HMRC's hands with no independent oversight. There's an argument uh, among many that, well, you know, these are people who are avoiding tax, they deserve both barrels. But what about the propensity for punishing honest mistakes or indeed for HMRC to make a mistake of its own, as it in fact admitted it has done in some cases last week? Yeah, well, two of the powers which they're actually seeking at the moment, which aren't yet in the legislation, one of them is direct recovery of debt. 
And under that, what they want to be able to do is if they consider somebody owes them some money, whether it's because they've underpaid PAYE or um, if they've, say, self-employed and they haven't paid all of their tax, if HMRC thinks that's the case, at the moment, their only way of recovering it, if the taxpayer doesn't actually pay it over, is to go to the court and, and to get an order to recover the money from their bank account because that is a bit of a convoluted process. They want to bypass that system, and that's caused a lot of consternation because it could apply to almost anybody across the board. HMRC say what they would do is contact the taxpayer four times before they do it, but we know ourselves that sometimes their records may not be up to date and that contact may go to the wrong address. We've seen cases where HMRC have tried to take people to court where there isn't actually an amount due, but their records are wrong. The example you've given just there, that sounds like a situation where it could happen to sort of relatively normal people with fairly uncomplicated tax affairs. Is there a danger that proposals uh, targeted at the super rich could end up being used against people who don't have sort of battalions of uh, accountants and tax lawyers to help defend them? Well, this one wasn't targeted at the super rich. It was actually targeted across the board. It's ordinary self-employed people who are the part of the problem at the moment, but who will be affected by these quite draconian powers that they're, they're seeking to get. One of the things HMRC has spent a lot of time doing over the last few years is um, improving data collection. So they have this new uh, supercomputer system that collects information about people from all sorts of sources, the land registry, the DVLA and so on. So HMRC probably knows a lot more about you than you think it does. Bearing that in mind, what should you do if you get a letter in the post saying, we think you owe this tax, pay up now? Well, you need to take it very seriously for a start because, you know, don't put your head in the sand and think, well, I don't think that's right and, and leave it. Because if they're right, then obviously you need to approach them and agree some way of settling that. If you're pretty sure they're wrong, you do need to challenge them and, if possible, provide evidence. But proving a negative is extremely difficult. OK, so the key message, don't ignore it. It's not going to go away. Indeed. Thank you very much, Tina. There's lots more on the politics, morals and practicalities of taxation in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is, of course, part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. We're always keen to hear your views. If you feel you've been roughed up by Hector, let us know how you got on. Our address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. It seems like we're talking about pensions just about every week on The Money Show these days. And that's partly because the government seems to make an announcement on the subject just about every week. This time it's on the pension commencement lump sum, or as it's more commonly known, the tax-free cash. Since the early 1990s, most people have been allowed to take a quarter of their accumulated pension fund as tax-free cash. Those in final salary schemes can take an actuarially calculated equivalent. The catch was always that you had to do it fairly quickly, within around 18 months of starting to draw from your pension fund. Now the government has floated the idea of extending that timetable, and indeed allowing a quarter of any pension fund withdrawal to be tax-free. This proposal was actually announced back in August, but for some reason the government has felt the need to announce it again, and the spin from the Treasury is that you'll be able to treat your pension fund like a bank account, because after all, it's your money. Will this make much difference? 
And is it even a good idea? Joining me now is Alan Hyam of Fidelity Personal Investing. Alan, let's look at the practicalities for a moment. Is the Treasury saying that the 25% of each withdrawal is over and above the lump sum you can take at the start of your um, pension? Or is it a question of either or? Either you take the 25% up front or you take it as you go along? Well, what they're saying is that everybody has in their pension a maximum amount that they can take as a lump sum tax-free. You're right to say it's usually 25%, but in extreme cases it could be zero, and in the other extreme cases you could have the whole lot tax-free. So every person has their own individual amount, and people need to know what that is because it might be more or less than 25%. Once you've got your personal amount that you can take as tax-free, what this clarification from the government is saying is you can decide when to take that. So let's say you are a person with 25% of your fund that you can take tax-free. You can take on your first withdrawal from your pension an amount that's all tax-free, if it's up to that 25%. Or you can say, look, I don't want to take any of my tax-free at the moment. Give me some of my other part of my pension and I'll pay some income tax on that. And that might be quite sensible if at the point of withdrawing it you had no other income from any other source, you would want to use your £10,500 personal allowance first. So you could make a withdrawal of a taxable element, but because you have no other income, use your personal allowance. So what we're going to get now under the new rules is the flexibility to decide which bit of your pension you want to be treated as taxable income and which bit you want as tax-free. Well, that all sounds very welcome, but what's the thinking behind the change? Well, this is part of the government's philosophy to try and sweep away the tax regulations that restricted and inhibited people making retirement decisions. The sort of rules that said you had to take your pension and your lump sum at a pretty similar time. You had to take your pension as an income spread over the whole of your life, which led to 90% of people buying the product called the annuity. The government wants to sweep away all those sorts of rigid defaults and leave people free to decide when to take their pension, how much to take it. They want to encourage people to work longer, so perhaps staying in the workforce as a part-time employee, so they have a bit of pension and a bit of paid work to sustain themselves. They see it's a necessary part of encouraging extended working lives to give people this sort of flexibility. As we know, there's been a huge volume of change to pension rules and regulations since the um, since the budget this year. With all this change going on, is the industry going to be ready to deliver this? And indeed, are pension funds really set up to allow sort of ad hoc withdrawals in this way? Well, most pension schemes aren't set up to deal with this flexibility in this way. The flexibility has existed for a couple of years now for people to draw their pension flexibly, provided they met what was known as a minimum income requirement. So you had to have secured quite a sizable amount of guaranteed annual income before you were allowed to touch the rest. So there are a number of companies who will deal with people with significant pension savings who do already offer this flexibility. The challenge here now is to extend from, if you like, the wealthier top few percent to the whole mass market, the ability to manage this type of withdrawal. And it isn't perhaps helpful at the headline level to put in the general public's mind that the pension will behave like a bank account because nobody's going to be able to turn up with a plastic card and put it into a hole in the wall and withdraw cash. You're still going to have to make decisions about how you want to take your pension, as we've just discussed. 
if you came to us at Fidelity and said, I want some money, we'll need to know whether you wanted it as taxable or non-taxable income. That's not the case when you go to your bank. People are still going to have to think carefully about the decisions that they make and engage with their provider. Is the industry ready or not? Some firms will offer this, many won't. Most pension schemes aren't set up to deal with this, and many, I suspect, will choose not to do so. Finally, Alan, we're starting to hear more and more questioning the sort of ideological and political basis for a lot of these changes. There's been an enormous amount rushed through in a very short time space. And in fact, are we even getting to the stage where the sort of ancient principle of pensions that you've got tax relief on the way in, uh, in return for for the income drawn uh, at retirement being taxed, is being compromised? Well, I think a lot of them are philosophical and even political in nature, and your listeners don't really want to hear my politics. What I will say, looking at this from a customer point of view, these new freedoms allow everybody to have a much better retirement than they would have had before. There's the opportunity to pay less tax, there's the opportunity to take your money at the time it suits you, so you could retire earlier, you could spend your pension fund down between, say, 62 and 75, perhaps knowing you're going to inherit some money in your late 70s if you still have elderly parents. So this gives people a lot more freedom to make the right decision for them. But is the industry geared up to cope and help them make these decisions? There's no doubt the pace of reform has stretched the industry. But there are many companies who will be ready, and inevitably there will be some that are not. Thanks very much, Alan. These reforms are very complex and there are lots of issues to consider and we've written lots and lots about the practical detail. You can read all of it on our website ft.com forward slash money and when you're there just click on pensions in the secondary navigation. That's all from The Money Show this week. There's just time to tell you a little bit more about this weekend's paper before we go. John Lee talks about his latest small-cap stock tips. Find out how chiclet novelist Jane Green manages her millions. And there's more on how all these pension changes we've been talking about might affect your chances of getting a mortgage. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Chris, and our special guests Tina Riches and Alan Hyam. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.